This is a Ward Scott Files advisory. The Ward Scott Files podcast may contain material not suited for people who are easily offended. Trust us on this. This show contains adult information and opinions. Please protect small children, sensitive pets, fragile houseplants, and liberal relatives. Thank you. Warthog. He's going to come up the steps. Here he comes. Oh my goodness, and he's huge. Hello, boy. I wonder if we can pet him. Hi, boy. Can we touch him? No, don't. Help me! Help! Help! Good morning, good morning. Coach Hogg here in Coach Hogg's locker room on a Monday morning in the piney woods of North Central Florida, God's country. The day after all the big games, my golly, we got more games. We got fingers and toes. Uh, we are, of course, in the Melton Law Studio. Melton Law is the only official law firm partner of the University of Florida Fighting Gators. And we're protected 24-7, 365 by crime prevention and brought to you by all kinds of sponsors, Poser MD, uh, On the Spot Cleaners, Acasio, uh, Allstate Insurance, R&R Construction, and today we're going to have a special Coach Hogg's locker room. I've got a real columnist here today, a guy who really knows what he's talking about, not one like yours truly here who kind of shoots from the hip, uh, Franz Beard. He and I go way, way back uh, to the good old days. Uh, Franz was once on the state championship Gainesville High basketball team circa, I think, 1968. But I don't want to date us at all. But uh, I know that he was – Part of that great basketball team that GH had had, had in those old days. And uh, Franz, I'm going to follow you today as you take us through what you do as a columnist for Gator Country, Gator Bait. I know you know so many of the stories behind the stories. Um, of course, Dion's been the big story, and he kind of fell down to the real world. Uh, anything you want to begin with, I'm all ears, sir. Well, uh, let's start with Dion. It, it was only a matter of time before Dion's uh, pointy little toes came down to earth. But I got to tell you something. Dion Sanders is good for the game. Uh, people say, well, it's all about Dion, et cetera, like that. And in some respects, it is. But here's the thing. You know, people used to say the same thing about Steve Spurrier. Uh, they'd say, it's all about Spurrier. But you know what happened? He took all the all the slings and arrows and darts. They threw them at him, and Steve Spurrier was tough enough to take it. Dion is tough enough to take it. You know what that does to his players? That leaves his players. They all the pressure is off of them because everybody is going after Dion. Uh, he knows he doesn't have a championship team yet, but as he said after the after the uh, game uh, with Oregon. He said, glad you guys got me now because you ain't going to get me in the future. And the way he can recruit, I I feel certain he's going to do that. Um, Dion's an interesting type, though. Um, great baseball player. Everybody knows he played in the World Series with the Braves. Everybody knows he was an All-American for Bobby Bowden. What people don't know is that his best sport was basketball. And, and down in Fort Myers, his best sport was basketball. He really? was totally unstoppable, but that wasn't his favorite sport. His favorite sports were baseball, 
and uh, and football. So that's what he did. But trust me when I tell you, the sport that he that he was the best at, that he was the most naturally gifted at, was basketball. Great, great basketball player. Could have been, could have been in the NBA. You know, I I've often wondered if he had just tried a little harder, could he have been the first guy that ever played in the in the uh, Major League Baseball, the NFL, and the NBA? I think he could have done it. I agree with you. I think he could have done it too. And um, this day and time, um, it would be. Well, there, there are some great athletes, as we know, in that NBA who have focused on basketball, made that choice as kids, really. But, you know, I imagine that Dion, you know, had his head on a swivel stick at one point, not knowing what to do next, you know, being so good at so many things. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I understand that NFL teams simply wouldn't throw to his side of the, of the defense. Yeah, he took one side of the field away. You know what, though? Deion Sanders was 20 years after the great Eddie McShann. Eddie McShann, had it not been for that knee injury, would have been in the NFL. But quite frankly, I think Eddie would be the first to tell you that if he had to go back and make the decision again, he would have gone to play for Coach Wooden out at UCLA. That's how good Eddie McShann was. We went into games believing that, you know, this is back in the day when they actually had more than one center jump. You had a center jump at the end of every quarter, every held ball, et cetera. But you knew you were going to have four of them. We thought that was an offensive play. We scored most of the time off the center jump. So we th- went into every game thinking we were already ahead eight to nothing because Eddie jumped that high. But Eddie was, as you know, because you were a football coach, Eddie McShann could do magical things on a football field. Had the arm, had the had the great feet. Can you imagine Eddie McShann in the offenses they have now? And running out of the shotgun, running an RPO where he has the option to run it or pass it. Uh, I look at guys nowadays and I watch them play and I think back, Eddie McShann in 1968, you take that guy, you know, with his health and his acumen and his intelligence, etc. You put him in these offenses now, and I hate to think what how many records would have been broken, but they would have been a bunch of them. I think Eddie McShann was probably the best athlete to come out of Lachlan County for sure. Ever, I can't think of any others that could even hold a candle. And he watches the show from time to time. And uh, so the other day he was actually in the chat room here. So I wish he'd get on here now. He may be watching now. I know he picks the show up later if he doesn't catch it now. But um, there's no question about what Eddie McShann uh, was one of a kind. I remember when we really needed help, uh, we were trying to make the football team make it all the way to the state championship. Uh, we just put Eddie over on free safety. And, you know, that changed everything all of a sudden. You know, he was a quarterback. We had to have him. So when you talk about two-way guys for, like Hunter that is made all the press for Dion, Eddie did that. Eddie went on and played free, free safety for us. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Can you imagine him as a wide receiver with his leaping ability? 
you know, you just tell your quarterback, hey, you know, it, just throw the ball in the corner of the end zone, throw it high, I'll get up there and get it. Um, I mean, this is a guy that averaged 22 rebounds a game. You know, I, I, I had, I was, had, was on the stat book. I was the official guy on the stat book in the state championship game. I didn't get to play my senior year. I tore a meniscus. And so I had to sit at my senior year. I had to sit out, but you know, uh, my junior year, of course, we were the best team in the state and we, we found a way to lose in the district championships to Winter Park. Should have never happened. They had a guy named Donald Jackson who went up to play for um, Lake City Community College and then went over to, over to Furman and had a great, great college career there. But Donald Jackson was a lot like Eddie. He was a guy, one of these guys that was just a phenomenal athlete. Um, you plug him into any sport and he would have been the best player on the team, no matter the sport. He'd have figured out a way. Um, and Eddie was like that, but Eddie, I, I was on the stats and we played Reigns in the semifinals and Reigns had Leonard Truck Robinson ends up leading the NBA and rebounding a couple of years, had a great pro career, um, six foot eight. He was also a quarterback. I don't know if you know that or not, but he was six foot eight. 240 pounds and this is before he filled out <laughs> i mean wow. he, just, he, he was he was 68240 and he was a skinny 240 and he got to the nba and all of a sudden he was 68 and 260 and and was they called him truck for a reason um but uh eddie had more rebounds than the entire reigns team then we come back the next night, we play Hillsboro. Um, Ronnie Shively was the coach there. He played for the Gators back in the early 60s. And Ronnie Shively got to the state championship game, I think, three or four straight years and lost every year. But we we handed one of them. Eddie hit a – we went into overtime, Gordy Mott, Five foot nine, out jumped there. Six foot three guy, and we're we're still trying to figure out how that happened. <laughs> I, think somebody, I think somebody put super glue on their guy's on foot on his feet, so he couldn't get up. The Gordy did tip the ball. George Rafferty over to Eddie. Eddie drills this shot that it would have been a three pointer in in our in these days, but it was about I'd say thirty feet. Eddie knocks it in, and we wouldn't say, but Eddie fainted. And he fainted right there at, at midcourt. We thought he was dead. Oh, no, we, come on. I didn't know we that. Thought, we thought he'd had a heart attack. We really did. He, he, he just, but he, they revived him. He had just fainted. That's all. Oh, and wow. I, whether there was the excitement or the adrenaline flush, you know, the, people have this thing I've heard called an adrenaline flush, and it just makes your head it rushes all to your head at once and makes you so lightheaded that you that you feel faint. Yeah, and I, and I don't know whether it was an adrenaline rush or or excitement or I I don't I just don't know what it was. But Eddie McShane fainted there at midcourt. We thought we really and truly thought he had had a heart attack and died. You know, of course, I remember the time that we traveled to South Carolina with Eddie. I'm sure you know this story. Um, 
we couldn't win that game no no matter how many touchdowns we scored and how many yards we run. You know, we collected about 500 and some yards, and every one of them was called back because we were the first to have a black quarterback. And Greenwood, Greenwood South Carolina. Yeah, Greenwood, South Carolina. And um, you got to hand it to Nye Black. He, he, he was no, no problem. He was going to face that down. He was going to go into South Carolina. And uh, we finally had to get a Highway Patrol escort out of that town and lost the game. Well, the, the cool story is the one leading up to it. We come in to check into the, ho- into the motel. And they said, uh, well, you know, we, we had Eddie and a couple other black athletes. I said, you can't stay here. And Ed and I like just said, got on the bus, said, turn around, said, fine. Just tell them that, that, you know, w- you, this is what you did. We ain't going to be here. Turned around and all of a sudden the, the police, the highway patrol and whatever, they, they came, stopped the bus. All just a big misunderstanding, Coach. And and that's how that weekend started. And, uh, of course, Nye Black had this way of dealing with stuff like that. The Klan came to his house in northwest Gainesville. They were going to burn a cross in his yard. Well, Jim comes out of, the, out of his house with a baseball bat in one hand and a 12-gauge in the other. Ha, <laughs> ha. And 20 Klansmen ran like crazy. And the reason they did was they understood one thing. First and foremost, if Knobloch could have caught any of them, he would have killed them. Really and truly. And the second thing that would have happened is they knew darn good and well there wasn't a jury in Alachua County that would convict him. He would have been acquitted on site. You know, they, they would have called, they'd have figured out how, but there would have been you know, Nye Black would Nye Black would have never, ever, ever been uh, sent to prison for murder. But he, trust me, he would have killed him if he could have caught him. And imagine how that reverberated through the black community in this town. Uh, Jim Nye Black was their friend, and they knew it. He was a, uh, yeah, he was rough around the edges. No, no, no doubt about it. Jim Nye Black. Jim was one of those "what you see is what you get" types. Yeah. Um, I've had people ask me before, why didn't he get a college job? Um, there are some who suggested that the University of Tennessee wanted him when uh, Doug Dickey became the coach here. They they really wanted Nye Black. So you can be up there because there were a lot of them. And I've had people say that that it was the fact that, you know, you had got to do a television show and stuff like that. And Jim, let's just say, had could could use some colorful language at times. You know, uh, you may remember um, the Jacksonville League game, uh, 1968, we go over to the uh first game of the season we go over to the Gator Bowl in Jacksonville and the coach from Lee had made some comments about how they were going to show Gainesville boys how some real football is played and uh I think we were up 35 we, we won the game I think 65 to nothing yeah it was 65 to nothing nine touchdowns and a safety 
Eddie was just phenomenal that game. But um, I brought the stats down from uh, – I was working with the Gainesville Sun, and I brought the stats down. I came down the elevator, ran them to the locker room with the stats at halftime. Now I'm like, I look at his hands start shaking. But them, them, them both, they got three first. If they get a first down, you're walking back to Gainesville. You're walking back to Gainesville. <laughs> hey, if, if, if they get positive yards, they get out, you're walking back to Gainesville. <laughs> and you know what? That football team knew he meant it. <laughs> they, they didn't think he was joking. Um, you know, Lee never got a first down in the second half, and they didn't. They finished with, I think it was like negative twelve yards. But not like uh, really, really told that story. Told, told, and and, I, and the thing about it is, I've heard a lot of coaches who who give speeches and they're fiery and everything like this, and I've seen a lot of coaches who do it and then don't get the results. The thing about it is, you get a speech like that, you better be the kind that can back it up. And if you can't back it up, your players, you're ill showing how your players play. Our guys went out there and played like like they had rabies. And, <laughs> and uh, yeah, but that was Nyblack. Nyblack just, uh, I, I can't say all the words he said, because. but let's just say I missed a couple of them along the way there. I'm telling that. Oh, they were, they were hilarious. Some of the things that were. And, and besides he being bigger than life himself, physically, uh, his reputation was bigger than life, but he filled in every bit of it. Um, it wasn't an exaggeration. Um, it was uh, it was a, an interesting experience being on his coaching staff. And, <laughs> I, can and I can tell you that I spent a lot of time with him. And the way he, I, I, I told the story the other day about how he talked me into being on the coaching staff. And the reason I did this was because a lot of people don't understand how really good a teacher he was. There I was at Gainesville High. I don't know if I ever told you this story, friends. And I was in the classroom. I was an English teacher. And that non-black came to me and said, I got to have you on the football field. I said, well, coach, I said, uh, I'm really here as a classroom instructor. I said, I don't know the X's and O's as well as you do. I said, uh, oh, he says, I'm not concerned about that. I'm going to teach you the X's and O's. And he says, but what I want you out here for is you're a great teacher. And uh, that's what it's all about is teaching. These kids Mm -hmm. will follow a great teacher. And we got to have you. We can't have you not with us. And then he threw me a shirt. I already had my name on it. Already had Coach Scott on the thing. So he's also a good psychologist, but that was what it was all about, teaching and leadership. And I'll never forget that. That's what he, you know, that's what coaching is, is teaching. And I've heard Dion, which we started out talking with about here, uh, say the same thing, that, you know, it's about teaching. And uh, the thing about teaching on the football field, or I helped, I helped Garney Hatch for a while, too, Mm-hmm. Uh, on the basketball, which I really like, Garney. I think he went to Pepperdine, if I remember right. Yeah. Went to Pepperdine as an assistant, and then yeah. Abilene, Abilene Christian as the head coach. Still lives out in Abilene, Texas. Yeah, well, I, I helped Garney. And, of course, Ed Poor and I were great buddies. Um, 
Ed was a fantastically funny guy. And um, Ed and I would kind of talk around behind a blocking dummy about, oh, my golly, you wouldn't believe what the biggin just did. And <laughs> we we would just, wow, shake our heads. Can't believe he did that, but he did it, you know. You know, you had the famous Easter egg hunt, which, <laughs> oh, my golly. I mean, what a, what a drill. But um, that's the way that's it was played. And you had the pit. Oh, we had the pit, yeah. Oh, definitely. Um, that that was dug by the PE troublemakers, you know, and uh, yeah, they were they were the ones who dug it. And uh, well, Garney had us go out with him, as you know. Knob Black had had a weight room that was better than any college weight room in the country at the time. Definitely, and the, and the Florida football team would come over, and they'd use the Gainesville High Gym because they couldn't get the weight room at, at UF was maybe a third of the size and you know not well stocked um he had us go out there and do it and as you know not black liked that rope climb because this is from his days as a oh yeah drill, as a drill instructor in the marine corps find the rope to the top and then come back down well there's bob weatherington and i and we're both scared of heights so we devised a little scheme and we wait till we see Nye Black with his back to us. And then we get a boost and we go up about four or five feet. And, and the, you know, as you know, we had somebody down below holding the rope down, down below and the other one up there. And we look and we see Nye Black starting to turn. And then we start coming back down like that. And Nye Black, you boys good. You boys good. <laughs> and then then be my turn. I'd help Bob up there, and you know, as his nickname was Bob the Blob because he was he was a big boy. You know, he's yeah. about I guess he was Bob was probably about two hundred twenty five, two hundred thirty pounds, which in those yeah. days was a big lineman. Yeah, and, and but we had the basketball guys out there with the football guys, and here comes Bob Weathering coming down, and I'm like, "You did it, uh, yeah, Coach, we did it." He <laughs> said, "I don't know how." Now, but I don't know how you did it either. I told Jim about that years later, and Jim said, you didn't fool me. I knew you both guys were cowards. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he loved that. He loved that coward stuff. Well, he threw that out there right away. You know, he told me that he picked up the concept of the weight room uh, from the coach up at Stark. Uh, David had, Hurst. David Hurst, who, if you recall, Stark Tornadoes, for state champions over and over again. And I really liked David Hurst. I thought he was a great coach. And he was, in the beginning, they made their own weights. They had a foundry. And they made their own weight room. And one time, uh, David Hurst told me, he said, you know, in school, uh, Jim and I were classmates. And he said, I never, you know, because David had one arm that wasn't developed fully. And he told David told me, he says, Ward, I never was worried about anybody picking on me because Biggin was my buddy, and everywhere I went, he went. <laughs> that that is a hundred percent correct. And and they were they were they were if ever there was such a thing as lifetime buddies, those two guys were lifetime buddies. And uh David Hurst had a guy named uh Oh, well, Larry Brown. 
who went to Kansas State because at that time, you know, there was no integration here in the South. He goes to Kansas State, ends up with the Pittsburgh Steelers. It was a tight end. He goes to the Pittsburgh Steelers, and they turned him into into an all-pro tackle. Those great Pittsburgh teams in the 70s that won four Super Bowls, Larry Brown was the left tackle in all four of them from Stark, Florida. And uh, David Hurst, uh, was the, was his high school coach. And, you know, when it came time for him to get a scholarship, Nye Black had all the connections. And Nye Black got him that scholarship out there to go to, to go to K-State, I think, to play for Vince Gibson, I think, was the coach at the time at K-State. But well, yeah. ends, ends up doing it. People don't realize all the, all the good things that Jim did. Jim, Jim, you know, if you wanted to play college football and you were on his team, didn't matter if you were good or not. He'd get you a scholarship somewhere. He he would, but he was adamant about guys going to college, getting a degree. Uh, that was one. That was his big thing, you know. Uh, you know, <laughs> forget, forget. I'm in his office, and this is a mid. You know, uh, he's sitting in there, and he's talking. He says, "You know." This guy is dumber. He is, he is dumber than the box that holds the rocks. <laughs> and he says, but you know something? He said, there's something about him. And he says, I'm going to get that boy in college. I'm going to get that boy in college. And sure enough, Jim Knob like busted his butt and got him in college. And he was like that. He, you know, it, he wanted everybody to get a college degree and to have that opportunity. And I think it's because he understood, because he didn't come from, Jim came from very humble circumstances. His mom was was an operator with Bell uh, Telephone at the time. And uh, Bertie, Bertie was, a, Bertie was a good old gal, you know, from the South. And, um, Jim came from humble, humble background, and he wanted to be sure everybody, everybody got a college degree, went to college, got a college degree. And it wasn't just going to get the degree. It was going and learning how to budget your time. And, and let's face it, Ward, you know what I'm telling you that is true. Everything we learn in college, we could learn it in one year if we just went straight to classes. The difference is, though, those four years, they are like an aging vat for us. And we go there, we learn how to budget time, we learn how to be on our own for the first time, do our own laundry, get, you know, okay, I'm hungry and I don't have any food. Okay, I'm going to have to go hungry today. You know, I'm just going to have to drink water and drink a lot of water and maybe, maybe I got enough money to buy a Coke. All these things you learn, you learn when you're away from home that first time. And froze up there, friends. Are you there, brother? Yeah, I know it is. Let me see if I can get him. Uh, we got a break coming up anyway. It happened once he started moving his computer. Um, 
give him a call if you can, Zach, on the on break, and tell him that he when he moved that computer, he broke up with us. Okay. Okay. So give us a break, and I'll get into Ward's weather when I get back then. Although the owner of Lewis Oil Company maintains she is 29, Lewis Oil turns 60 years old in June. Chevron would like to recognize the North Florida second-generation family-owned business, celebrating its growth and staying power. Lewis Oil Company maintains significant on-hand supplies, strategically located fuel depots, a delivery fleet, on-site service, fuel card locks, and convenience stores. Lewis Oil Company understands its responsibility in the local economy by providing service and delivery on demand and in crisis. As a first responder for 18 Florida counties and the southeast from Texas to Virginia, we are proud of this rare accomplishment. Lewis Oil delivers. Attention all Gator fans, Meldon Law is giving away a chance to experience the Florida Georgia game like never before. Two nights stay at the Hilton on the River, dinner at Ruth Chris Steakhouse, two premium tickets to the game, and a football signed by Coach Billy Napier, and much more. Go to the Meldon Law Facebook page and look for the VIP experience for two. Good luck and go Gators! This is Ward Scott, and I want to thank all our sponsors who keep the show going and pay the bills. The Ward Scott Files premium sponsors are Crime Prevention Security Systems, Large enough to serve you, small enough to care. Melvin Law, the only official injury partner of the Florida Gators. Ward Scott Files Gold sponsors are Lewis Oil Company, Shoot GTR, On the Spot Dry Cleaners, RR Construction, and Style Cuts. If you are interested in promoting your business on the show, you can visit our website, www.wardscottfiles.com. And click on the Advertise Here banner on the right side of the page or call my friend Freddie at 352-284-3733. Again, thank you to all the great businesses that support the Ward Scott Files. And remember, if you like the show, thank our sponsors and support the businesses that support us. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. May God have mercy on your soul. Or that very much surprises me that you've never been tased. You can't handle the truth! All these poop. Warthog. He's going to come up the steps. Here he comes. Oh my goodness, and he's huge. Hello, boy. I wonder if we can pet him. Hi, boy. Can we touch him? No, don't. Help me! Help! Help! All right, welcome back to Ward's Weather here on the Ward Scott Files. By golly, on... Uh, Plummeting Mississippi River is kind of the big story. We've got a milder day to here in the Piney Woods, North Central Florida. Uh, we've got mild weather. But, you know, the doggone Mississippi, they're saying you can actually walk across it in places. Uh, the water levels on the Mississippi River 
are going down for the second year in a row, um, along with the blistering heat and low rainfall, which has triggered extreme uh, drought across the central U.S. So the low water levels have uh, made unique rock formations, uh, so, you know, as for example, in the Mississippi River, um, which is usually surrounded by water. They made them accessible by foot. Uh, the Army Corps of Engineers is increasing the size of a levee in Louisiana to prevent salt water from surging into drinking water in New Orleans. So uh, this is very unusual. Every water level gauge along a nearly 400-mile stretch of the Mississippi from the Ohio River to Jackson, Mississippi, is at or below the low water threshold. There you go. Well, we got Franz Beer back with us. We have been going down um, memory lane of Jockdom, if you will. Jockdom is a wonderful place. Um, those of you who have been part of a team, uh, you know storytelling. There, you never run out of them. I mean, the characters that are in um, the athletic world um, make their own cartoons, and they're absolutely fascinating. Um, we've been talking a little bit here locally. We got off on this about uh, characters by Dion Sanders, who is definitely a character. And Franz uh, intelligently showed that his had a parallel who was treated basically the same way Dion's being treated now with hooting and ha-ha, he, fa- he lost and all that. And it was none other than our own Steve Spurrier. Uh, Franz, tell the story about Steve Spurrier and the visor. Got to see if I can hear him. Um, you go. Okay. Well, the visor, the visor became like Steve Spurrier's trademark, and it's amazing the number of coaches. Lane Kiffin wears a visor because of Spurrier. Dan Mullen wore a visor because of Spurrier. Lots of coaches you see out there, Bob Stoops never wore a baseball cap, wore a visor instead. Uh, it was like Spur, you know, it was like that. It was became Spurrier's trademark almost that people would people would look at this thing and say, well, hold on here. You know, uh, if, if Spurrier is doing it, it must be. And people don't realize one thing about Spurrier was that that Spurrier. Um, Spurrier was a product of the Sid Gilman system. And Sid Gilman, um, a lot of people don't realize who he was, but he was the biggest innovator that's ever been in football. Um, Nye Black, Perry Moss, and Bill Peterson would jump in a car in the summer. And I can only imagine what went on during this road trip they'd take. But they'd go visit college campuses and speak with and spend time with football coaches. In fact, when uh, Nye Black and Pete and Perry stopped in uh, Houston, Texas, uh, in spring of 67, they watched Bill Yeoman's twin veer offense. And by golly, that's what that's what we were running with Eddie McShann. In 1968, when we had Eddie at at quarterback and we had Mark Buell and 
and Jimmy Roundtree as the running backs. On the outside, Ruddy Dixon and Richard Williams, wide receivers, and Jimbo Knoblock as the tight end. Uh, what a what a really good team that was. And but we were running an offense that Knoblock picked up uh, out there with with Houston's with um, Bill Yeoman. But they went out. They they met went out to San Diego one year, and that's where Bill Peterson got his offense. And it was from Sid Gilman out there. Um, you know, uh, it's amazing how he affected things. He was when Spurrier was in San Francisco. He came under the Gilman influence, and Spurrier always believed. Okay, you got four seams, four vertical seams down the field, but you also have the X seam, which is your crossing route. And if you look at most of the big touchdown passes that the the long yardage touchdown passes during the Spurrier years, they weren't from a quarterback dropping back and throwing the ball 55 yards downfield, the guy reaching over his shoulder and catching it and outrunning everybody. Most of them were on the the bottom guy of the cross. Yeah, the top guy clears everybody. The bottom guy comes. He's got a clear field. It hit him, and all of a sudden, he take off. That was this whole story of Grossman to Gaffney. Most of those throws were were on on the bottom side of the cross. Same thing with Ike and, and Redell. Um, whoever was on the bottom of the cross ends up getting the big yards, it turns out. But th- this part of the innovation of Spurrier, that, that he could do stuff like that. And, uh, you know, the visor is uh, remains the Spurrier trademark. And you see coaches wearing visors. If they have most of them have are from the Spurrier influence. OK, I think Shane Beamer wears one up at up at uh, up at uh, South Carolina as well uh, from his days up there. Because Spurrier had the visor when he was at South Carolina as well. And. People up there, you go to you go to Willie Bryce to a ball game, and you see people coming in. They they're not wearing South Carolina baseball caps; they're wearing South Carolina visors. Well, initially, I heard too uh, that the SEC had a rule: you had to have the baseball hat, and wouldn't let Steve wear the visor. And Steve just took it upon himself to wear the visor. That's the story I heard. Maybe you've got a little different wrinkle on that. Oh, I mean, what were they going to do? You know, say, yeah. okay. <laughs> I mean, uh, it, you know, you, you think about the, the, some of the silliness that goes on, like through the SEC, you know, the, the SEC denying Florida the the championship they won on the field in 84. Uh, yeah. Or, yeah, or denying Spurrier the uh, – Championship he would have won in 1990. Florida had the best record in the SEC and didn't get credit for it because uh, of you know basically Vince Dooley led the charge both times. There you froze. You froze. We're having a little trouble with Franz freezing on us, but uh, maybe we'll get him back. Hopefully. Talking with Franz Beard, who is columnist for Gator Bait, Gator Country, used to work with the Sun, Jack Harston, been around for a long, long time. And um, we are Zooming with him. 
we're getting a breakup of the Zoom now and then. So I still want to stay with this because these stories are so entertaining, uh, so absolutely entertaining and um, insightful. So let me see if we can get him back here. Uh, production, maybe you can holler at him again. No, he's off. He'll, I think he'll come back on. Uh, meanwhile, I'm looking at the chat line. See if there's anybody got anything you want to say. See, we got uh, all right. We'll hang and see if we can get him back on here. The uh, we could control our production in. But we can't control always the guests who have their own Zoom connection. It takes quite a bit of upload speed for both audio and video. Uh, we'll see where we are. Having production contact him now. We were talking about the visor that Steve Spurrier has made a trademark of his. If you go to the Spurrier restaurant, you'll see the visors there autographed, uh, encased in, in, uh, in uh, cases there. And um, in the beginning, you weren't supposed to be wearing a visor on the sideline. Supposed to be wearing a baseball hat. And of course, Steve wasn't going to do that. And he just started wearing the visor. And that became the trademark of Steve Spurrier, as well as several other coaches, which we were sort of cataloging as we went around. There you are. Yeah. And we were talking, I was filling in, uh, giving a summary of what we're talking about with the visors. Um, let's talk about where the Gators are now, uh, Franz. I mean, you know how the fans are here. We know that so well. They're already disappointed in the Charleston game. I thought Charleston wasn't too bad a football team. Charlotte was a good football team. Charlotte, uh, Charlotte yeah. But here's the thing. They won the ball game. The defense played well. The defense is now number five in the entire nation. Um, people think that it, that this stuff just happens all at once, that you become great. And it is a process. There are times when, when it doesn't all work the way you want it to, and Saturday was one of those days. I think a lot of it had to do with the fact they played down to their competition. But you know, you look at it, people are complaining. Well, they lost to Utah. Utah, I believe, is going to win the Pac-12, hands down. I think they're the best team out there. They got the best defense, without question. Florida's the only Florida's gained more yards on Utah than any team out there uh, this year. Uh, and they just shut people down, and Florida got shut down by them. And Florida could have won that ball game, should have won that ball game. Then they get here, they have that big emotional high win over Tennessee. And I think people expected Florida to come out there and and win the game 49 to nothing. Well, they didn't. They kicked five field goals. But here's the thing. You look at those five field goals, okay? You convert those to touchdowns instead. But they came away with points on it. But you can get you convert those to touchdowns. And all of a sudden, you got a touchdown, you got another one. It's 42 to 7. 
and everybody's saying, holy cow, boy, that Napier's got it going now. You scored, you came away with points. Let's be real here. The guy's coaching, he's got it going. He's improving this team bit by bit, step by step. And if he goes up to Kentucky and wins this game, it's going to be a defensive game all the way. I think that we're looking at maybe a 14-10 to 10 ball game, something like that, 17-14. I don't think there's going to be a lot of points in this game. And you look at, the, at what's going on there, and all of a sudden, they might be 5-1, and one, or 4-1. and one. And then 5-1 and one with Vanderbilt coming to town. Then they got to go to South Carolina. They could be six and one going into the Georgia game. And people will be complaining, I guarantee you. I think Florida fans, uh, I've heard it said before, and you probably have too, they'd rather lose 43 to 42 than win 12 to 10. <laughs> you know, uh, what do you think of the catch? We're going to put that up on the screen here. Uh, I know you know what I'm talking about. Is that, yeah. We put the, uh, put the catch up there. I wrote about it today. Comment on the Facebook page. The glove. These gloves, and I went back and kind of researched how long receivers been wearing them. It's longer than I thought. Back into the 80s, really. Um, mm-hmm. That certainly helped that catch, did it not, France? Uh, in some respects, it did. Uh, the gloves are, are gloves are part of the game now. I mean, even quarterbacks wear gloves. Um, you know, uh, and let's face it, the game's more physical. It, it, it's as physical as it's ever been. Um, I go back to something Spurrier once said. He said, the players are bigger, faster, stronger than they've ever been, but the field's the same size. Yeah. Uh, that, there's no place to hide anymore. So you better have as much protection as you can. That's why I can't, I, I, I watch these kids out there basically playing in shorts. And I'm thinking to myself, why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? This is crazy. Protect those kneecaps, etc., like that. Protect those legs as best you can. But, you know, uh, I guess I want to show off their, their, their muscles and everything like that look cool. I think they yeah. think run faster in that kind of outfit. I mean, that's what I guess so. that's what they think about. I so, guess so. But <laughs> what do you think? Any... Yeah, what do you think about the um, realignment uh, of these leagues? And uh, I know you've been watching it. We've uh, written about yeah. it. What's your comments? Don't like it. Um, the Pac-12, you think about this. You look at the Pac-12. They have four teams in the top ten this year, and this is the last year of the Pac-12. What's interesting to me is the team that might, and I think Utah is the best team, but I'll tell you the team that might shock everybody and win it all is one of the orphans. That's Washington State. Washington State's got a quarterback named Cameron Ward, who it. For all the talk about Caleb Williams, who is a great player, won the Heisman last year. For all the talk about Bo Nix, great player, could win the Heisman this year. The best player in the league is Cam Ward. 
who started out from Columbia, Texas, 3,400 people, goes to Incarnate Word, which is in San Antonio, a little Catholic school that's in the Southland Conference, lights it up for 71 touchdowns in two years and transfers to Washington State. He's thrown for 13 touchdowns this year, no interceptions. And I people I know who know these things say, this guy's the best player in a league that's loaded with the most quarterbacks of any league in the country. And that includes, you got Caleb Williams there, you got Michael Penix at Washington, you got Bo Nix at Oregon, and on and on and on. Everybody's got a good quarterback, but this guy's the best. And I find it interesting that Washington State could win the pack, wouldn't that be a hoot for Washington State yeah. to win it the year that the league disintegrates? But what do UCLA, Southern Cal, Oregon, and Washington have in common with the Big Ten? I could ask the same question. What do Maryland and Rutgers have in common with the Big Ten? And the answer is absolutely nothing. And it, it bothers me that 123-year-old conference that has produced those great Southern Cal teams in football of the mm-hmm. 60s and 70s that has produced the great John Wooden and all of his national championships and his legacy. And look at the other sports that they've had that they, they've been so good at, you know, Stanford swimming, uh, um, you know, Southern Cal baseball, on and on and on like that, Oregon track. And this league is not going to be anymore, and there's something wrong with that. And, you know, the Big 12, to its credit, I, I, I got to give Brett Yormark some credit. His league could have dissolved and could have gone in a hundred different directions. But what does he do? He goes out there and he gets – BYU, Cincinnati, Houston, and UCF, all of a sudden he's got a pretty good league. Now, because of the way that this thing was going with the Pac-12, he ends up picking up Utah, uh, Colorado, Arizona, Arizona State. Now he's got a 16-team league that is basically a coast-to-coast league. Um, I don't like it, though, because you look at the – Imagine this, you're going to have to go for a volleyball match. You're at UCF, and you got to be um, at Arizona for a Wednesday night volleyball match. Imagine that, and all of a sudden that girl's got to come back. Yeah. She's got to test. She's got to do that on Wednesday, and they're going to fly back on Thursday. And she's got to test on Friday, a big test on Friday. I, I don't like what they're doing with it. And and I don't like what they're doing with it because of two things. Number one, it means that rivalries and tradition don't count. And number two, look at what it's going to do to the athletes themselves. There's something wrong with this. There's something desperately wrong. And here's what makes it even worse. You got an NCAA up there that can do absolutely nothing. And they have hired Charlie Baker the former governor of Massachusetts, to be the next clueless leader, replacing Mark Emmert, who, if he ever had an intelligent thought, it died quickly of solitary confinement in his head. Um, you got an NCAA that always loses in court, and they're going to lose again because they're going to challenge all, all these 
NIL rules and everything. Trust me on this. We're going to have unionized players. We're going to have players who become employees and get salaries and stuff like this. This is where we're heading, and it's not going to be good for college sports. Well, college sports is over then. Really? Well, the amateur model is over. Yeah. As if it really ever existed. But now, you know what NIL stands for, don't you? Now it's legal. Yeah. Is it being driven basically by football and television? It's always driven by football and television. Always. That's the cash cow. You know, that's what that's what makes all the money. Um, if you're going to have a big time football program, you, program, you better be aligned with a conference that can make you the most money. And that's what it's all being driven by. And, you know, I, it, it just kills me that the Pac-12 didn't have a bright enough commissioner to go to use to go to ESPN and work out a package that's, you know, people they were they complained on the on the left coast well the people on the east coast aren't going to watch us because they're going to be staying up late at night they're not going to stay up late at night to watch us it's not our fault here on the right coast that they're 2,500 miles away and three time zones away we didn't that's not our problem we didn't invent that problem it's just one of these problems of geography and they've complained about it, which blows my mind. It's it, it really is mind-boggling to think. But that's their driving force has been we don't want to play late games. Okay. But you play the 3.30 game, it becomes a 12 o'clock game. Okay. If you want to play it, you know, their 3.30 becomes a 12 o'clock. I mean, it becomes a 7.30 game here. And. It, it just it, the the ge- geographical logistics made it very difficult for them, and they what they wanted and demanded didn't fit in with what network programming and programmers wanted, and that's why that deal didn't get done. It's why the league broke up. Now it, the problem is, see, they think the Big Ten's got the solution because they got three different networks. They got Fox at noon, CBS at three thirty and NBC in the evening. And that's gonna be that's gonna be a nightmare when it's all said and done more. It really is. It's bad bad news for the for the left coast. Um I feel the worst for Washington State and Oregon State. But there's interesting things going on here. Those two schools have have made a lawsuit that's gonna prevent the other ten that are all leaving there's a thing in their bylaws which says that if you decide you're going to leave, you do not have any voting power anymore. So it's very interesting that they have that Washington State and Oregon State have sued to claim all the assets of the league, which are pretty substantial when you think about it. And you, you, they get three years of Rose Bowl income, which is about a hundred million dollars a year. They get three year. They get six years of of NCAA tournament revenue from the league. They get, uh, they get uh, some other deals that are worth, worth a pretty good amount of money. These two schools 
what they're going to be able to do is they're going to have the cash that they're going to be able to go tell San Diego State and Fresno State, Boise State, Air Force, Colorado State, UNLV, come join us. We'll have a nifty little eight-team league, and we've got some cash to make our league better. And if we're willing to take those 1030 games, which is 730 on the West Coast, you know, and, and here's the thing about it. San Diego State isn't going to be recruiting. They are not going to be recruiting in Orlando, Florida. UNLV is not going to be recruiting in Atlanta, Georgia. The people who are going to watch are the people who they're going to recruit on the West Coast and in the Mountain West areas. It's going to be a, a nifty little deal. I think that's what's the next step. Well, thanks so much for being with us today, Franz, and we have to do it again. It's so entertaining and educational. Um, you are on top of the whole deal, and I always like checking in with you. Uh, we've been talking with Franz Baird, probably Gator Bait, Gator Country, you name it, and uh, appears on a lot of podcasts and writes for a lot of outlets. Long time, buddy. Go way back to the days of state championship basketball and football in the good old days in the late 60s. Rance, thanks so much for uh, checking in and have a great day, sir. And Warthog Command Center out.